If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Ezra chapter 3. Sometimes when you delve into these Old Testament prophets, you're left wondering if there's any relevance. Sometimes when you finish hearing a sermon on an Old Testament prophet, you wonder if there's any relevance. I hope that today you sense by the end of this sermon that this passage of Scripture is incredibly relevant for us. In fact, Ezra chapter 3 is the account of a very large praise and thanksgiving service. About 50,000 people will attend a praise and thanksgiving service in Ezra chapter 3. And in it, I see incredibly valuable principles for the effectiveness of we, the church, as witnesses of God. Are you aware that people attend church less often now than they used to? It is striking. I'm not talking about the outside world coming to see what's happening at the church less. I'm talking about people who love the church, involved in the local church, simply attending church less often. Now, I am aware that church attendance statistics are not the goal, but they are a metric that we use to gauge involvement. There was a Barna survey started in 1993, carried on basically to the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. What you note on that is mere weekly church attendance, and you can see a dramatic drop-off. Post-pandemic, it has only become worse. Now, while often younger generations get blamed for this, when you really study these charts out, you'll find something interesting. That elders, that's the generation that precedes boomers, actually have dropped off at a 14% clip, boomers at a 13% clip, and Gen X and millennials only at a 5 to 7% clip. The older generation, almost at twice the amount of church attendance drop off. It goes against what we think. We tend to think that as people age, they become more religious. Why? Are people attending church less? As I was reading and studying, I came across this. I believe this to be a great accounting of it. Number one, people attend church less because they just have more money. Greater affluence, you say, I want to be one of those people that has more money. Yeah, but I want you to be one of those people that has more money and still comes to church. People just tend to have more options because they have more money. There is a higher focus on kids' activities. The reality is there's a lot of sports that happen on weekends, and affluent parents are able to choose sports over church. It's as simple as that. There's more travel. There are blended and single parent families. It just tells us there are people who would like to be at church and sadly, they can't be at church. There's a failure by many to see a direct benefit in attending church. Now that's a little bit of a gut check for the church. Is there a little benefit to attending or is it a self-interested mentality that doesn't allow them to see a benefit in attending? People do what they see value in. People do what they want to do, and if they're not making time for church, that tells you something. 
There has become an increasing sense of valuing mere attendance over engagement. When you merely attend church but do not engage in the life of the church, it is a revelatory thing, in fact, statistics say, if you value attendance over mere engagement, over time, attendance actually declines. There has also been a massive cultural shift, a seismic cultural shift. It is a fact that this has gone on and on and on. I guess it is possible to say, as we look at the world around us, the church is having less impact on the church. And if the church is having less impact on the church, then the church's impact on the lost world is also diminishing. Here's a second chart to cheer you up and make you feel good about yourself. Here's how Americans view the church or organized religion, which is certainly broader than what we are. Americans' confidence in the church or organized religion going all the way back to 1974, known as the Dark Ages by many. Consistently tailing off, dropping off, as one said, we can blame it on politics, education, the breakdown of family values, or any number of reasons, but we would be wrong to do so. A more helpful approach, if we ever hope to reverse this trend, is for the church to be honest about its condition. These trends reveal something the church cannot ignore, the reality that many people no longer see it as having a good reputation. It is no longer seen as the light of the world or that shiny city on a hill. Statistics do not lie. They are not what we chase, but they do tell us a story. The reality is the church has softened its stance on Christianity and thus the impact of the church on the lost world has been greatly lessened. We must see a renewal. And there are tenets within every page of Scripture that teach us how we can honor God. They reveal God to us and they write our perspective of God. In an age when most people never enter the doors of a church to worship on Sundays and the majority have dismissed the church as irrelevant, as outdated, as useless and over, we have to ask some pertinent questions. And amazingly, we find answers in Ezra chapter 3. Because as we begin Ezra chapter 3, we find a somewhat similar condition. The Jews had been taken into exile. Three million strong in Babylon. 50,000 people have been stirred by God to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the altar and to rebuild the temple. A few out of many have chosen, stirred by God, to take on a difficult thing. When they arrive back at Jerusalem, they see a city nearly in ruins, more than 50 years of overgrowth. Not one stone standing upon another, seemingly irrelevant, seemingly outdated, seemingly like the story is over. Understand, even in the Old Testament, worship of God was used to be a witness to the lost world. God, speaking to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 43.10, said to them, Ye 
are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Rightly worship me and show the lost world that I am the true God. He said to the church in the book of Acts, ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. If we are ever going to be effective in our witness for God, we must see a renewal in our worship of God. The church has to have a renewed impact on the church so that the church can have a renewed impact on the lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we're ever going to have that renewal, I believe we can start by studying Ezra chapter 3 and note some of the principles that are timeless. First, I want you to see this in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 3. And when the seventh month was come, And the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. This journey has taken some time. 900 miles have been covered. They have now settled in Jerusalem and the cities surrounding Jerusalem. And Ezra chapter 3 tells us they were unified in their goal. So unified, they come to the city of Jerusalem, gathered together as one man. Many members coming together as one body. By the time we get to Ezra chapter 3 and verse 9, we're pinpointing what the tone, the tenor of the leadership of this project was. I want you to note this as the leaders are listed. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren. Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. All the people have gathered together in Jerusalem as one man. The leadership is unified in what they are doing together in that place. By the time we get to verse 11, we read, And they, that is all the people in Jerusalem, sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord. 50,000 people have gathered to attend a praise and thanksgiving service. And one of the key tenets that we see in the spirit of this place was unity. Three times in the first 11 verses, they gathered together as one. The leadership was together. The people sang together. They were unified in their goal. They were unified and they were fellowshipping. Fellowshipping. That's a good church word, isn't it? It even sounds like something I don't want. Fellowship. Fellowship, unity, fellowship, one author said here, is the oneness of heart that comes when two friends are on the same side of a struggle. Fellowship ensues when it is two or more people who understand they're on the same side of a struggle, pulling in the same direction together. That's what we sense in this moment. Here, the Israelites have returned to a broken down city. This is a group of people who have literally risked everything. 
Mind you, they are the minority. The majority have chosen to stay in Babylon where life was comfortable for them. These are risk takers. These are people who are doing a difficult thing. And there is some kind of special fellowship that ensues when people engage in the same struggle. In effect, that's what sheds light on the unity that the church has. Engaged in the same struggle. Standing in a world of darkness. Proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ to the lost. Pulling our resources from all different venues in life together in one place. Understand, division always hinders the growth of a church. The devil always seeks to divide believers. That's how the enemy works. He always seeks to divide what God has brought together. Whether that's marriage, the family, or the church. The fact is, any relationship in which unity and commitment are essential, the enemy seeks to bring division. Now sometimes when people hear about unity, their thought is... Don't push for mere external conformity and make us all look alike and think alike and act alike. We can never, ever, ever confuse unity as we see it here and as is expected in the church with mere external conformity. But we must also be careful and recognize that the devil works tirelessly to mitigate our desire for holiness or separation from this world which God has established, right and wrong, light and darkness, good and evil. You understand the devil would be just as pleased if he could create unity in pursuit of carnality if he could create division amongst believers. Unity is so vital. The Lord calls for his people to be unified so that they can be effective witnesses. But not only do I see unity, note what we pick up in verse 3. And they set the altar upon his basis. For fear was upon them because of the people of these countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the feast of the tabernacles as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. That last phrase is very important. Because what that reveals to me is they were passionate about worshiping God. So passionate about worshiping God that their number one priority was to reinstitute right worship of God before they ever even built the temple or they ever even built their houses. And to me, it is clear they really got after it. They were right back to observing every offering they could observe. They were right back to the ceremonial sacrifices every single day. There was passion. There was excitement. There was an involvement in that place. One said this, the exiles did not spend time and money on expensive homes or take a holiday after the 900 mile journey. 
Neither did they wait for the temple to be completely built before the sacrifices restarted. They determined to set their worship and their lives on the right footing from the beginning. From the very beginning, they desired to rightly worship God before they were ever concerned about their own needs and their own comfort. This is exactly the same passion that Jesus mandates of believers when he preaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says in Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that he knows you have need of shall be added unto you. It is stunning when the church who has encountered the scriptural truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is shamed in their level of passion as compared to these Old Testament saints who got after it and reinstituted right worship for God before they ever built their houses or cared about their things. The foundation of the temple hadn't even been laid yet and they were passionate about restoring the right thing. What has happened in the good old-fashioned department of your passion about the things of God? Being a part of what God is doing, serving in the place that God has you. I love how one pastor got really candid. He said, there are some Christians who are slow to volunteer for work, yet extremely vocal. He said, they know exactly how the job should be done, They just never do it. Now you're thinking, are you just quoting yourself, Pastor? No, someone else said it, but I buy into it. There is such a disease of spectatorship that has invaded the church. We have stayed in our isolated circles, deriving from it what we think we need without ever putting back into it what God expects us to do. What has happened is an ebb of passion, and the ebb of passion has gotten to the place where we seek the world and we chase them with the gospel to no avail. Now it's revealed to us they were passionate in here because they were under pressure. They were afraid of the people that were in the countries around them. If I had been near Ezra, I might have said, Ezra, let's not put that part in there. That we built the temple and we got after these sacrifices because we were afraid of the foreign nations around us. What they understood from scripture in Exodus chapter 29 is the altar was the place that God would meet with them. And even though they were motivated by fear in their offering up of sacrifices, it is clear that God still accepted the offerings of sacrifice. I'll also say, unfortunately, sometimes it takes pressure to make us realize our need of God's help. And sometimes it takes a little pressure to renew our passion. You don't have to have it all figured out, by the way. God accepted their sacrifices and their offerings and their praise and at the same time he knew they were motivated to do it because they were like scared little kids running to him for protection. Again, I love how one wrote, he said, even when they were weak with fear, they worshiped God. What is it that has you rattled these days? What is being shaken loose from your perfectly nailed down life? It's in those rough waters where your prayers are refined and reduced down to the purest form 
of worship. Sometimes all you can say is, God, help. And even in our frailty and in our weakness, he receives that and he can act on our part. If we are ever going to see a renewed impact on the world, it will be as we are unified in the same struggle, as we are passionate about the things of God, and that unity and that passion produced a generosity. You have to back up to Ezra chapter 2, verses 68 and 69. You see the first signs of their generosity as people gave willingly towards this project after their ability. That's a key phrase. They didn't all give the same amount. They didn't all give the same sacrifice. The fact is they gave after their ability. It's reiterated in verse 5 here in chapter 3. Everyone that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. When you are aware that you are pulling the same direction. And you are passionate about the things of God. You don't need somebody to cajole you with a message or a campaign to pry money from you. The fact is, unity and passion breed sacrificial generosity. Now, I cannot help it. In our exact moment in time where we're preparing to build a building, I even note in here they paid the subcontractors with offerings. Note this in verse 7. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus king of Persia. What this means is even in the functional, actual building of the temple and the altar and all of the implements, people generously participated in giving and it had real life practical fallout. Not the same gift, not the same sacrifice, all after their ability, generously giving. The fact is, if we're ever gonna see renewed impact, it will be as we all pull the same direction with a renewed passion for the things of God that breeds a sacrificial generosity and is centered on obedience. Back to verse 2. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon. Get this, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Everything that they did was because they returned to what God had told them to do in his word. Every mandate, every ritual, every ceremony was what God had told them to do. Obedience to the word of God must be the driving force for any renewed church that wants to have an impact on the lost world. This mitigates soapboxes. This defeats any pet project or preferential idiosyncratic implementation within the church. Everything founded on the word of God. This was simple obedience. They're just back simply doing in the most basic form what God had told them to do. They were already implementing what God had told them to do in the law before the foundation of the temple was even laid. Simple obedience. Just do what God said to do in his word. Just obey. When a group of people are pulling the same direction, 
passionate about the things of God. It will breed a sacrificial generosity. It is guided and it is guarded by obedience to the word of God. And I want you to notice what happens in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men, that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Praise and thanksgiving is the attitude of a renewed witness for God. By the time we arrive at this segment of verses, the foundation of the temple is laid. I'd venture to say in no way, shape, or form was it fantastical to look upon. But the moment the foundation was laid, the leadership makes a decision. Let's get the priests all dressed up in their regalia. Let's have the Levites, the sons of Asaph, out there with cymbals and with trumpets. Let's blast the trumpets. Let's smash the cymbals. Let's offer up praise and thanksgiving because the foundation of the temple is laid. That means that what, what happens inside of a group of people who are unified and passionate and generous and obedient is a spirit of praise and thanksgiving pervades even when small steps forward are taken. They didn't wait until the end of the temple building in order to celebrate, they paused and they praised God and they said thank you for the mere foundation being laid because they recognized how far they had come. And what we note in here is a group of old people. Always the old people. In fact, here in the King James, they're called the ancient men. How many of you would consider yourself an ancient? Yeah, there are some. Some of you are ancient. What happens is now the foundation of the temple is laid. There's 50,000 people who have taken this treacherous journey, made it back to Jerusalem, cleared all the cobwebs and all the weeds and all of the disrespect and decay of 50 plus years. They lay a foundation for the temple. They gather together and they celebrate with praise and thanksgiving. And in amongst this group of people are some ancients who begin to weep. What are they crying about? Well, they remember the magnificent temple that Solomon built. They can remember what that thing looked like. 
They can in their mind's eye see the alleyways of Jerusalem around where this temple once sat. They can see the smoke billowing up in their memory and they're heartbroken because what they're looking at now is in no way a comparison to what once was. And they see this little rudimentary foundation and they see other people celebrating and in their hearts and their minds they think what once was. I think some of them are rightly heartbroken because they're thinking what could have been if we had not capitulated to sin and been removed in judgment to bondage and seen Jerusalem knocked down and intermingled in all of this crashing cymbal and blasting trumpet and offering up of hallelujahs, which is literally the Hebrew word for praise in these verses, are some ancient men crying. And I mean the noise is going far out into the villages and places that surround Jerusalem. And people can't tell what's going on. They just know it's loud. Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they crying? Are they laughing? Sounds a lot like the modern day church. Is it good? Is it bad? Depends on who you talk to. Is it right? Is it wrong? Depends on who you talk to. Is it what it once was? Depends on who you talk to. Could it be something great? It just depends on who you talk to. Here's what's going on in this moment. They grieve over the loss of their majestic temple. Their grieving, however, went well beyond this chapter. It went on and on and on. So much so that it had a debilitating effect on the workers. They actually stopped working. Haggai has to come along and eventually he has to rebuke the elderly. He has to rebuke the ancient men for clinging to the past so strongly that they're discouraging the people in moving forward. They're clinging to what once was and how it once looked and how it once felt. They're clinging so strongly to the past that they've actually ground the work of the present day to a halt. Haggai chapter 2, Haggai shows up on scene. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people. Here's your message, Haggai. Say this. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet... Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. I'm still with you, I'm still working. Yeah, but it doesn't look like it once looked. Yeah, but it's not the same thing. I want the same thing for all time. It's not the same thing, but God is still in it. Work, he's saying. He's calling for them to understand you offer up praise and thanksgiving even for little steps forward. What he's calling for here is multi-generational unity. Multi-generational passion, generosity, obedience, praise, and thanksgiving. Ultimately, he's looking for mutual encouragement. And as the New Testament tells us, so much the more as you see the day approaching. If we're ever going to have an impact on the world, 
the church has to first have an impact on the church. And by the way, that's you. You as an individual member who make up the body. There needs to be a renewed awareness that we are pulling the same direction. And you don't have an isolated rope off to the side trying to steer it incrementally away you want it to go. We go God's direction. We're pursuing what God wants. We're in the same struggle pulling the same direction. A passion, a renewed passion. What happened to you? Where have you gone? Where has your heart left? Where has your energy ebbed a renewed passion? Simply getting back to passionately what God wanted you to do, whether it's perfect and complete or not, passion, which breeds a sacrificial generosity. Yeah, that's you and that's me. That is guarded and guided by obedience to the word of God which ultimately breeds a spirit that pervades of praise and thanksgiving, even for little things. And where you see this stuff diminishing, grasp this, we begin to have less and less impact on the lost world. If the church is ever going to have an impact on the world with the gospel, then the gospel has to have an impact on the church. And what has largely happened is we have become spectators and consumers, and we have forgotten that we are informal missionaries, that we are members of a living organism that God has designed to be a potent tool of the gospel in this lost and dying world, and we're running out of time. If the church statistically certainly is diminishing in its impact, then we have to have a renewal. And if we're ever going to have a renewal, there's a lot we can learn from this 50,000 large worship service in Ezra chapter 3. Would you please just for a moment bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.